Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, Welcome to Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio. 855 kilohertz in your AM dial. Thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show highlighting issues around homelessness. Uh, My name's Bill and for the next hour my guest will be sharing her journey of recovery from compulsive eating. I'd like to welcome Gemma to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi. Hi, Bill. Um, as, a me- as a member of Overeaters Anonymous, she's going to share her experience with food obsession and how OA has helped her. Uh, Gemma, we usually start off by talking about how we, how we sort of grew up and sort of what family was like and, and when you first realised that your relationship with food was different to other people. So how, how did that all start? Sure. Okay. Um, so I grew up aware of uh, 12-step programs because my father is an alcoholic and has been in and out of AA over his life. And so I experienced being at AA meetings I experienced AA meetings being held in my kitchen, um, you know, from the age of two to ten. My mum was also a member of Al-Anon for a number of years, which helped her immensely. And as she really didn't have anywhere else to put me and my sister, we would often go along with her. So at that point, I didn't really notice anything wrong with food but what I did notice was that I felt horribly different to all of my peers. Um, School was really painful and I was very anxious and very unhappy and very closed off but I always had I actually always had good friends and yet I felt as though No one liked me um, and I was no good. And there was also the shame of not wanting anybody to know about my dad's drinking or my home life at all. So there was that feeling very, very strong and very present from as early as I can remember. Yeah, it's very isolating, isn't it? Not wanting other people to know what goes on at home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was... Pretty awful. <laughs> yes, having grown up in an alcoholic situation, I know the feeling. Mm. It's um, and plus you get the sort of guilt and shame. It's it's very shameful mm. having an alcoholic in the family, um, and you don't want anybody to know about it. And that means that you've got to lie to lots of people, and so lying becomes a normal activity. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Did you get any relief? Well, not much, but I was lucky enough to uh, be put in by my parents a couple of Alateen meetings, so for children and teens with alcoholics in their family. And they weren't 
they, they weren't to my memory like n- normal meetings where you go around and share your feelings. I don't know how they're all run, but yeah. it was just a bunch of kids playing together um, and, you know, an adult sort of supervising. Yeah. But we were all in a room together. We all had an alcoholic parent. So there was this vibe of we all understand each other, we all accept each other. And I felt really wonderful at those meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Kids being able to um, relate without having to communicate, it's it's great. Yeah. I, I often wonder what it would have been like if I had attended those meetings more because I can only remember one time, um, but my mum believes that there were a handful. Yeah. Um, so yep. however many. Yep. <laughs> so how old are you now? I'm 29. No, I mean how old are you in your story? Yes. Oh, how old am I in my story? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not 29. <laughs> um, about t- 10 to 11 Okay. at right. this point. Okay. Yeah. So still preteen. Still yep. preteen. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So when did you realise that eating comforted you Mm. or satisfied the inner need? Well, I think – I mean, I think an instinctual part of me knew that as a child because I was doing it. Yeah. But I think I realised that there was a problem with that until – sort of becoming a tween, you know, sort of 11, 12, and then 13, yeah. and starting to become more conscious of my body and wanting to look a certain way, yeah. and then feeling a compulsion to eat certain foods and eat in certain ways that went against this other desire to look a certain way. Right, okay. Yeah. So what were your friends doing? Similar things? Pretty, pretty, a lot of... The things were the same, you know, going sleep, girls sleepovers, you've got lots of, you know, binging, yeah. <laughs> food binging is a sleepover essential know, yeah. pastime <laughs> for, for people, for girls. I, I know that to be true. Yep. Um, and, you know, sort of scrambling change together, going to the milk bar. Um, and I'm sure friends of mine were also nicking money from their parents' wallet and things like that to buy lollies. I, I don't necessarily feel that, that was strange. Yeah. But there were probably a few other things that I I didn't really think was strange at the time. I don't think I thought about it, but I hid it. You know, this these weren't things that I would do in front of other people or admit to doing. Mm. So what about the family at home? Did they notice was was eating you're eating unusual at home? No, I don't think so. Right. I don't think so. Um, well, you know, Dad was out of the picture yep. <clears throat> for at that point. <clears throat> and, you know, my mum was dealing with her own things and often out of the house. I was kind of a latchkey kid. Okay, yeah. Did you have brothers and sisters? I have one younger sister. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And And we spent quite a bit of time together too and sometimes we engaged in some of this strange food behavior together so I I don't quite know why maybe I went one direction and she went another direction 
Yeah, we're all different. Yeah. Mm, I don't know, yeah, why one person goes down this particular part alcohol food spending because like spending to me like buying things is just foreign yeah (laughs) so when did you notice that your eating was um very different like what sort of things were you doing that you thought "Mm, other people don't do this but i need to Mm, that's a really good question i think um one of the your big things would have been eating things off the floor, ground, okay. yep. that sort of thing. I mean, it's it was the shame element, you know, really mm, like another part of me looking at me going, Ooh. oh, that's, yeah. that's pretty gross. Like people, you can't let anybody see this. You can't let anybody know about this because you'll be completely rejected for it. Yep. And yet <clears> feeling a compulsion to do it. It's there, yeah. Mm. It's an opportunity. <laughs> yeah. 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 So um, I, I guess you're progressing through your teens. So t- what else were you doing in your teens that sort of caused you to continue eating the way you were? Was there anything? Um, so I did, a, you know, I did dabble a little bit with with the, trying to diet, but actually that that really didn't take off at all because I found alcohol, drugs, okay, cigarettes, boys, a bo- one boy in particular. Yeah. And these things for a period a period of time, probably from 15, 14, 15 to 17 became so compelling that I actually just didn't think about food. I mean, I was eating, I was probably compulsively eating at times, um, definitely like while intoxicated and things like that, but there was no thinking or or concern around my eating behavior at all. No obsession, yeah. No No. obsession, no worry, Um, but what happened was I I became um, more and more obsessed about drinking, smoking, taking drugs. Um, and about a relationship that I had as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so okay. So your relationship um, was your boyfriend doing similar things? Yes, yes. And in my mind, way you know, way worse. He was the one with the problem. So you know, he. Yeah. he <laughs> <laughs> it's always someone else. <laughs> never kind of quite. I think never kind of quite catching on that when he was sitting there, you know, drinking cask wine at noon that I was also sitting there drinking cask wine at noon. And you were younger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, and <laughs> I was younger, yeah. exactly. Um, but his drinking was a real problem for me. Yeah. What he yeah. ate, that was a real problem for me because he was putting on weight and I couldn't have that and he was drinking too much and I couldn't have that. But actually, if I really think about it, I facilitated his drinking and eating. Probably a lot more than he facilitated mine. Okay. So yeah. what was that? Was that going out and buying it or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, even, I, even underage. <laughs> well, I was, because he was, he was, you know, of age. So yeah. he, he had he the could, yeah. license and everything, like yeah. the ID. So I was the one with the plan. Okay. You yeah. know, yeah. I was the one behind the scenes going, we're going to do this and we're going to get this and we're going to, you know, we'll buy this and we'll buy these like 
bags of things that we can eat while drinking at the same time and we needed like a deck of cigarettes. So Yeah. <laughs> and because I ex- I also expected him to have the money for it. Okay, yeah. So yeah. he was enabling you and you were enabling him. Yeah, right. Yes. But <laughs> looking back, I wonder how much of a puppet master I really was. Yeah. <clears throat> Whereas I was blaming. Yeah, I was blaming him for mm. that. Hmm. Mm, yeah. <laughs> You've got to be able to justify it. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so what sort of things did you did you do then? So it sounds like you were isolating. Yes. Yeah, so for a little bit of time, I really enjoyed partying, but actually, um, I became instead of feeling free and disinhibited, I felt more and more uh, anxious, uncomfortable that sort of thing. Um, And whatever was happening with my boyfriend, uh, I I don't know, but we both ended up going from, you know, sort of going out and partying with friends to drinking alone together in his bed, bedroom. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, But drinking really big amounts of alcohol. Yeah. But then waking up after those sorts of things and there was always like packets of chips and uh, chocolate bar wrappers. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we always needed like a bit of kind of everything, you know, the salty, the sweet, you know, we sort of needed all of that. Yeah. Um, Particularly me. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you deal with the volume of food? Um, well... I didn't really do anything at first. Mm. Um, I didn't really realise I was putting on weight. Um, I've never actually been particularly overweight. I've always been very, um, I'm, I'm very petite um, and kind of athletic and done dancing for ages and um, was young and active and that sort of thing. But I sort of went from probably looking like a very fit adolescent to looking like kind of an an unwell sort of chubby depressed adolescent right you know, sort of sullen sad unhealthy unfit kind of very pale i don't know if i was getting any sunlight yeah. at all yeah <laughs> probably not no um no one said anything to me probably because i would have been far too sensitive to hear it but there was a point when i started to realize that I had put on weight and that I looked different and I became more and more uncomfortable about that. And that's when I started to notice how much I was eating but more importantly, I think for me, that I would, you know, tell myself I'm not going to eat this and then I would. And I wasn't hungry, you know, it wasn't like – Hunger, I would have just eaten something that I told myself I wasn't going to eat. And then I was thinking, okay, what what next? What next? Yeah. Yep. And that's when I started to see the obsession. Okay. So what about your mum? Did she notice a difference in you? I think my mum was very much worried for me about my alcohol consumption. Okay. She yep. kind of caught me a couple of times drunk during the day. And called me out on it. Right. Um, she was very angry. 
I'm sure she was. So just like your dad. <laughs> that exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was very anxious, very scared for me. I think, um, and that was quite uncomfortable for her to do that. Um, but I, I didn't really do anything about it. I, I went home and I just drank more. Right. Yeah. And then there wasn't a problem anymore. No. Because you forgot about it. Yeah. yeah. For a bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Solved. Yeah. yeah. Problem solved. Okay. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial, and 3CR on digital radio. Um, I'll just play a an announcement for Walk for Justice. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice and add your voice to the call for change to refugee policy. Demand Australia's political leaders to abandon the current harsh and unjust policies and provide permanent protection for refugees. Stand with people from all over Melbourne. Demand the evacuation of Manus and Nauru and end the cruelty. Meet at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March at 1.30pm. Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is a 3CR supporter. Podcasts of the uh, Living Free Show are available on 3cr.org.au forward slash living free and also on iTunes. Other 3CR shows uh, are podcasts and they're available on 3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts. Um, if you'd like to leave a comment about the show or you've got a question, uh, then you can call the station on 9419-8377 or send us an email at livingfree.com. Uh, sorry, 3CRLivingFree at gmail.com. Um, I'm talking to Gemma, and we're talking about compulsive overeating and how Overeaters Anonymous can help. Um, so, Gemma, you're sort of 18 or 19. You've got eating problems. You've got a bit of a drinking problem. Um, yep. So uh, things only get worse in those situations. So what, what happened next? Ah, good. Very good question. So I've um, I've graduated from high school, and I went straight into university to study psychology, and that has then become my career. Right. So yeah. I did stick with that, and I must have kind of been. I was. I'm attra- attracted to psychology for the that sense of trying to figure out myself. and heal myself and I was doing that at that time um so I yeah I was at university and I've always been good academically and and could work extremely hard in that area so my willpower you know there's no problem with my willpower I have very very strong willpower and I did end up actually topping um my class a number of times over my undergraduate degree so yeah. while all of this was happening. <laughs> so very strong willpower um, to my detriment sometimes. Um, and I also was starting to realise that I no longer wanted to continue my relationship with my then boyfriend, um, which was a really big thing for me um, because I made a lot of my life around him. 
and around trying to fix him. You know, he was the one with the problem. He drank too much. He ate too much. He wasn't getting a job. I needed to fix him. Um, So when that was removed and I ended that relationship, I didn't have anyone else to fix but myself. And so in my infinite wisdom, I decided that I was going to fix myself by getting really fit. Like if I get really, really fit, then I'm not going to eat junk food anymore. I'm not going to crave or be tempted by all this other food. Um, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to be able to control my alcohol. I'm going to be able to control my food consumption. I'm going to be able to control my life. I'm going to look great. Everything's going to be great. That's, you know, that's, that was my plan. And for the first few months that felt pretty motivating. Um, and again, strong willpower. So I was exercising for, you know, two hours a day with no rest days. Um, and I was um, restricting my food quite a lot, which is a problem for a compulsive overeater because the obsession and the compulsion doesn't go away. No. And yet I had extremely strong drive to lose weight and try and become fit because I believed this was going to fix me. So how did I? <laughs> how did that work together? Um, it led me to start purging. Right. So through not numerous means, um, throwing up and, um, you know, going for periods of uh, sort of no food, starvation, uh, compulsively exercising, et cetera, et cetera, um, and also eating huge amounts of, like, diet food. So all of those things that are light, you know, fat-free um, and eating huge amounts of vegetables and – I was getting quite I, – I was getting very little pleasure from eating these foods, um, but I still couldn't stop eating huge quantities of them in a really compulsive manner. So it was on my own, yeah. isolated, not going out, not telling anyone what I was doing, would never let anyone see me, going to the supermarket, buying like bags full of – diet food and sitting in front of the TV, you know, curtains drawn, phone off the hook, mindlessly eating this cardboard-like food. And I think one day I realised I don't enjoy the taste of this food. So why what the, why am I doing this? And I realised as well at that point I couldn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that it wasn't about the taste and it wasn't about the pleasure. And that's kind of, I think, solidified more clearly in my mind that this was a compulsion, that this was an addiction. It was beyond temptation. Yeah. Did you feel like you were going crazy? Yes, I was. I felt like I was going extremely crazy. And the more I tried to control my own behaviour and my own thinking, the more my obsession escalated and it, it was the mind of a, of a crazy person, an insane person that can't get this ridiculous idea out of their head that just goes round and round and round and round nonstop. Mm. Yeah. So you also took alcohol and drugs. So what is eating different 
overeating different to overconsuming alcohol or drugs? For me, it is. Yeah. And that's a personal experience because I have heard other people talk about their compulsive eating in different ways. But for me, food doesn't get me drunk. So the only kind of relief that I get from food is just the moment that the movement of my hand to my mouth and the presence of food in my mouth. Once that food is swallowed, there's no easing. There's no release. All the anxiety is right back there. So so you don't get that warm feel, that warm <laughs> No warm glows for me. <laughs> no, which makes it an even more insane kind of... Activity, yeah. Activity, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no yeah. warm glows. <laughs> so, you know, you're shoveling all this stuff into your body. You're purging it out. Mm. So what happens? Like, you know, how does it... How's it end? How do, how do you get to the point where you go, enough's enough? Yeah, okay, good question. So there were a number of times when I, I, I actually got to the point of panic with my eating um, because eating does numb the panic but only so momentarily that I could still <laughs> panic about it <laughs> while I was doing it. Um, and there was one particular day, which was actually Easter, I think, either Easter Sunday or Easter Monday. Um, and at that day, I promised myself, you know, I was so committed, I'm not eating any of the chocolate. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And family were there. That they exchanged chocolate, eggs, da da da. Of course, they provided me with some, and you know, instantly my mind was like, "Okay, just have one and then stop, and that'll be enough." And my family were talking amongst each other, but I had, I, no, I, I was not present. So I had one um, sort of small egg, and then bang, this you know craving started, and I could just I, I don't remember it felt like a minute but everything was gone and it was like me totally in the separate world from my family who were sort of sitting on the couch and I'm just there in this bubble of eating um and then all of my chocolate was gone so the craving wasn't gone but my my chocolate was so I needed to do something about that and I excused myself to the bathroom um but I didn't go to the bathroom. I went to the kitchen and I knew that there was this cake that my dad had brought for Easter in the fridge and it was all wrapped up. Like so it was completely wrapped up in a plastic bag sort of thing. And I didn't open the bag. I just ripped it. Like there was no, I was very you know animalistic at that time. I just ripped it and I just got my bare hand and I just plunged it into the cake and just started eating it with my hand, crouching at the fridge, hiding. Behind the door. Behind the door, <laughs> yes. And there was no reasoning then. You know, my family were obviously going to find out that somebody had done this. <laughs> it was obviously going to be me. But there was no there was no premeditation. There was no consideration for any of that. I was yep. out of control. Yep. And... So there must have been consequences. <laughs> well... That's it 
scared me. It really, really scared me. Um, and I think one thing that I didn't sort of quite mention was at that time my biggest fear in the world was getting fat. Right, yeah. Yeah. So being out of control meant I was going to get fat. And if I was going to be fat, then how, that would be the worst thing in the world, which yeah. I do not believe anymore. But it scared the hell out of me for that very reason but also because I felt so anxious and so miserable and so insane um, and I didn't really want to live either. Yeah. Like I really didn't want to live like this and I, I did have feelings and thoughts of this is not going to be an okay life to have. Mm. And so on that Easter day, I once my dad had gone home, I told my mum what was going on, which I didn't know what to say to her. I just said, I have a big problem with food. Um, and she probably knew. <laughs> it, I was mental. Like, yes, <laughs> I think she was waiting for me to bring it up because in her wisdom and experience that she knew – that trying to bring it up with me was not going to go down very well. No. 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 Um, and so she probably patiently waited until that time when I actually mentioned it myself. Um, luckily she did. You know, she wasn't trying to push me. And she said, huh, yeah, why don't you go to OA? Um, which was something I'd never like, – I don't even remember knowing about OA. And she didn't say Overeaters Anonymous. She just said OA. But I yeah. knew what it was. Like I yeah. just knew what it was, which was strange. I still don't know why I would know what those two letters meant, but I did know what they meant. <laughs> Strangely enough. Yeah. yeah. And I was desperate on that day and I said, yep. And we looked up the local meetings – and it's a small uh, fellowship in Melbourne. And so the next meeting wasn't for a few days on a Thursday. Right. So I committed then. Yes. Yeah. Yes, mum. I'm going to go to that meeting. That's what I'm definitely going to go. But uh, Thursday came and a few days sort of away from that insane day. And I was at uni. And in the morning and it started to rain and I called my mum after my lecture and said, oh, mum, it's raining. You know, maybe I just I don't, don't think I should go today. I'll go another time. And she said, if you don't go, you're not coming home. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's not really a hard ass at all. That's quite out of character for her. She wouldn't sort of say that if I brought any other problems to her. But... I think she knew that that was the best way to get me to go. <laughs> to address the issue, yeah, yeah. 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 So one other thing that you mentioned uh, off air was um, you'd seen some counsellors, but they weren't much help. So why, why weren't they much help? Well, I – yeah, I saw a few. And they offered me some strategies, um, strategies to manage my anxiety. I <laughs> – you know – didn't really talk much about 
the food to the counsellors. But when I did, you know, they talked about, you know, keeping a food diary and things like that. Um, And I, you know, smiled and nodded at them and never went back because my experience had been that I had done all of these strategies and I knew them and I had studied them and I had applied them and of course I I knew better than they did but at that point you know I I had tried all the things I was suggesting and not only did they not help they actually made it worse yeah strategies to try to manage yeah control my food intake made the obsession worse so yeah that's one thing you learn the 12th step program is that you're the problem. Mm. You're not the solution. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so my first meeting, that, that Thursday, in the rain, I um, caught public transport all the way from um, one side of the city to the other side. Uh, I think it took about an hour and a half on public transport. Yep. And I got into this little kind of slightly dingy room. It's still the same now as it was then. Um, Not quite as dingy now. I don't know. (laughs) It's filled with love. Um, And there was probably only about five other people there. But there was something about sitting in a room. I do not remember anything that was said. I cried the whole time, like, in, you know, that uncontrollable wailing, crying, not gentle tears down the cheek or anything. And it was – I experienced something incredibly different that day than I had with all of the counselling um, or therapy that I had done before. And that was the feeling that I was not responsible for my compulsive overeating. It wasn't my fault. And I – couldn't and therefore didn't have to try and control it myself Mm. and the relief of that was enormous it was so enormous and that the possibility that there would be some other kind of solution other than trying to control it myself sounds good this is the living free show on 3cr on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming um, I'm talking to Gemma about compulsive overeating and Overeaters Anonymous. Um, so, Gemma, you, you've made it to your first meeting. So you got through your first meeting. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so how, how have things changed mm. and what was your journey like? Mm. Yeah, journey is the word. That's a really, really good word because it's been a real journey and a roller coaster. Um and so it's been 10 years since that first meeting. And my life's absolutely changed. But, the, you know, the change process wasn't, you know, waking up the next day. It, it was a really big process. So for the first few years, actually, I worked, worked the steps like a fiend. Again, that willpower comes kind of into play here and got to channel that willpower into the steps because I was lucky enough to really, really want it, you know. Um, You've got to want it. You've got to want it and I'm so grateful that I wanted it that bad. All I wanted was 
the freedom from that obsession at that point and the promise that that would happen, the promise that comes from the 12 steps and from the other members around me saying, keep going, this will happen, um, was what I wanted above everything at that point. And so I did, but the freedom didn't really come very quickly or easily, so to speak. So I damaged my body quite a lot and by um, messing with it, with food, and to an extent alcohol, drugs, and exercise and purging and all of those things that I did. And my body then also um, greatly affected my mind. So I, I was all out of whack. My hunger levels were out of whack. My hormones were out of whack. You know, my, and my mind was also out of whack. So the first few years was one where I felt like I was I was sort of white knuckling it, you know, I was just holding on for dear life, using all the tools of the program, using the like um meetings and other members to basically keep me away from the food. While I had the chance to work a program. Um and I did that and I actually worked the steps probably twice through before experiencing a very obviously noticeable freedom from the obsession. Yeah. So that, yeah, I guess it's the um, spiritual awakening where you realize what the problem is mm. and that you're part of the problem and that. If you get out of the way, things can happen. Yeah. Well, I just had to get out of the way. But I had to get out of the way and stay out of the way for like a really long time. Yep. <laughs> so that's where the meetings and the other people kept me in really, really good stead because they just said, keep going, it's okay, you're okay. And I needed that reassurance and I needed that faith and hope from them um, to – to keep going um, and I'm, I'm glad I did. I had to uh, actually put on weight because I was quite uh, severely underweight and it really wasn't until I actually got to a healthy weight range that I think my mind could also have the opportunity to heal and so I think that was one of the things that did hold back my recovery yeah. or, or the, <clears throat> the, the mental shift. It sort of held that back. It was like, well, your body's pretty sick, so we've got to kind of fix that first yep. before we can do the mind thing. Yep. Um, and in part of my um, part of the journey for me has been addressing other problems, other addictions and compulsions with other twelve step programs. I later, you know, discovered that I was also an alcoholic. Yeah, um, that was an an interesting experience because I had completely stopped drinking alcohol when I came into OA. Um, and alcohol was considered a sugar, so yeah. no sugars. No sugars, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was not game to pick up alcohol because I knew I had a problem with alcohol. But about six, yeah, six years in, I was like, I'm doing really well. I'd finished all of my studies. I, 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 I qualified for the profession that I'm in. Um, you know, I was a re responsible adult. Maybe I can drink. Um, and so I spent a year researching that. Yeah. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> and, 
and found out no, the the compulsion is much the same with alcohol as it is with food. And that when I picked up a drink, I didn't know when I was going to stop. And more often than not, I didn't stop until I passed out. Yeah. Yeah. Classic alcoholic. <laughs> pretty classic. Pretty, you know, not not very. Yeah, and I because of everything that I knew and the wisdom and my experience in twelve steps, I, I actually saw that really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So did you did you feel ashamed of that having you know been in recovery and then fall for the old trick? You know, the, that I'm I'm okay. Did I feel ashamed? I think yes, but the shame disappeared as soon as I got honest about it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It, shame can only exist once you don't. <laughs> yeah, don't acknowledge it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, so as soon as I told my sponsor, who is also a dual member, yeah, which is extremely helpful, um, it was fine. You know, mm. it was fine. You know, yep. she's like, yeah, so am I, and. Yep. <laughs> this sort of happens to us, and um, and I also went to a few other fellowships, including Al-Anon, to yeah. sort of address my relationship with my father. Yeah. Did that improve? My relationship with my father is, I think, really, really good. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to have a relationship with an alcoholic. Uh, my dad kept on drinking, but I had a good relationship with him for a number of years. Mm. But it was me entering his territory mm. rather than him coming into mine. And I That's would, right. Yeah. yeah. And so we had a good relationship because we were genuinely friends. Yeah. But we didn't talk about stuff, a whole lot of stuff that we just didn't talk about. But yeah. on the things we did talk about, we were genuinely engaged and, yeah, friendly. Hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, me and my dad are similar in lots of ways, and we, you know, we love debating, or it's it's really yeah. arguing yeah. about <laughs> politics, or you know, psychology. I mean, I'd always yeah. remind him, <laughs> I probably know more than you, so excuse me. <laughs> but you know, we we'd have amazing conversations. Uh, he's a very amazing man. He's just also has a disease like I do, and I don't get involved in his disease or his recovery, wherever that might be at at the time. Or his life, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, you know, as soon as I acknowledged and admitted that I was powerless over food, I think all the anger and resentment that I did have towards my dad, pretty much a lot of it went away at that point. Mm. Um, Because he's got a problem too. He's, yeah. It's just the problem. It's like, oh, he was basically the same age as me when he was like a chronic alcoholic and yeah. couldn't control his own life. And now here I am yeah. not controlling my own life with food of all things. And I didn't even have two kids to worry about. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, no reason whatsoever. <laughs> okay. Um, so how's your relationship with your mum? Has that improved as well? Yes, um, my relationship with my mum has improved a lot. I was a, just a shitty person, you know, just the, all, this, the, all the regular character defects, selfish, dishonest, angry, oh, angry, irritable, you know, um, just kind of shitty 
just mm. chitty to be around. And you could chalk some of that up to teenagehood in some ways. So I think I use that as an excuse. But a lot of the shittiness actually continued for a number of years in fellowship and in program and as I got older and you know I really had to come to see myself that these are my character defects based in my fear Mm. and I needed to look at my fear or else I was just going to be a shitty person Mm. who ruined my relationships yep (laughs) yeah that's alcoholism the family disease breeds alcoholism yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it's that control process. Yeah, that everybody's dishonest. Everybody's scared. Everybody's anxious, and it's it's not a bre- good breeding ground for normal people. <laughs> no. no. So, yeah. So everybody's affected. Yes. Yeah. Um. And how about your little sister? Did have you got a good relationship with her? Yeah, I do as well. Uh so even more recently, um, just over the last kind of couple of years, we've we've sort of been talking more honestly, I think, about the ways that growing up in a, a home affected by alcoholism has affected us. Yeah. And I've looked f- for recovery in one way, in my way, and she's gone a different way as well. Um and I can kind of respect that now and see that that's right for her. Yeah. Whereas, you know, years ago it would have been like, no, you have to do this, you're this, and you have to do exactly what I'm doing and yeah. controlling older sister to a T, you yeah. know, just fit that stereotype. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we all find that there's no one way. We each find a way and that's the way that suits us, but there's no there's no one solution, that's for sure. Yeah. Hey, listen, uh, we've made it to the end of the show. Um, so if you want to find out more about Overeaters Anonymous and how they could help you, then you can go online at oa.org.au. Um, I don't have a phone number, um, and I, there isn't one on the website. I haven't had a look last night. Yet. We don't have a phone number. Right. <laughs> yeah, but we have an email address, which is probably the best thing to contact us on, which is oa.melb, M-E-L-B, at gmail.com. Right. Thank you. Um, okay, so that's all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Gemma for coming into the 3CR studio this afternoon and sharing her Overeaters Anonymous experience with us. Thanks. Thank you very much. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from food addiction again and we'll be joined by some members of Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. Uh, stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, an engaging radio show hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Thanks for listening to Living Free program today. 